Today's reading comes from Matthew 5, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You may be seated. Fathers, we're entering into this second beatitude in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We ask you that you would strengthen us, form us, cause us to think rightly about the ways of your kingdom, and teach us what it means to be those blessed people who mourn, and teach us what it means to receive your promised comfort. I pray this today as we look at this text, and I pray that we would live into this deeply in all of our life, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So two weeks ago, we began this series of messages looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and we began by asking a question. We said, can you adopt the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and at the same time reject the teacher? So can you take the Sermon on the Mount and say, I really like this, but then at the same time reject Jesus, the preacher of the Mount? And I I said, no, I don't think you can. I don't think you can try and take hold of the teaching of Jesus and at the same time reject him. And because of that, this study that we're going through in the Sermon on the Mount is as much about the preacher on the mount as it is about the sermon itself. Uh, We're looking at Jesus' sermon. We're looking at what he said, how he's asked us to live. Uh, We're looking at the sermon and what he wants from us and what he wants for us. But we do need to keep our eyes, we do need to keep our gaze fixed upon him as the author and finisher of our faith. Two weeks ago, I started by trying to show that Jesus entered into this situation and the people that he was speaking to on the mount that day, the people who sat down around him, his disciples and the crowds that came around the disciples, all of those who were there, I tried to show that they were part of a particular story, that Jesus didn't just drop into history out of nowhere, that he came to a particular people who had been formed in a particular way by a particular story. And just like us, these people had a set of expectations, they had a set of hope. They were grounded in a set of promises that had been made to them. And then we see these promises all through the Old Testament. And when Jesus began his teaching and all the signs and the wonders and the miracles and the deliverances and the healings and everything that was included that followed his teaching, everywhere that he went, these are the things that happened. We actually see that some of these who were part of that story had their eyes opened and their ears opened to see and hear the truth of what Jesus was bringing to them. And they began to follow Jesus. And I I think they followed Jesus in pattern with the story that they had been a part of. I showed you this, at least I tried to show you this, by taking you through some of the life of Moses and looking at Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, where it says, The Lord your God, this is Moses, said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so so there was something to be looking for in this story of these people. Now, I say that by way of introduction to say this. The people that Jesus was ministering to, they were awaiting the fulfilled promises that had been made to past generations and passed down to them. They were inhabiting a story, and they were looking for one like Jesus to come. The point is they longed for something that they had not yet seen come to fruition in their lives. And it permeated their thinking. It permeated their praying. It permeated the way that they lived. They were expecting one to come. 
So today, as we look at this second beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, I want us to look at it really with three points. Asking what it meant then when Jesus said it to them, what it meant then. Secondly, to look at what it means now for us today as we read this. And then third, to locate our comfort. Where do we find our comfort? We need to look at where we find our comfort. So we'll look at what it meant then, what it means now, and where we find our comfort. What it meant then. Uh, I said that these people that Jesus was ministering to here on the mountain, as the disciples sat down and the crowds gathered around him, that they, in Jesus' generation, as he was teaching them in that time, that they were a generation of people who were longing for something they had not yet seen come to fruition. There was a guy named Simeon who really embodied this longing. Uh, God had spoken to him and told him that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah, the Savior, the long-expected one that Moses spoke of. Jesus was born, and we actually meet Simeon when Jesus' parents bring him to the temple to dedicate him. It says in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, or Messiah. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So Simeon was this man who was waiting, patiently longing with great expectancy for what it says in verse 25, the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel or the restoration of Israel, his nation, his people. His hope was that this Messiah, this messianic king figure, who he now sees as Jesus, his hope was that he would come and deliver the nation from oppression and that this Messiah or Savior would come and rule and that he would reign with peace and with justice. That's what he was hoping for. He'd put all his eggs in that basket. That's what he was all in on. The consolation or the restoration that Simeon was waiting for was a comfort or a help in the midst of the pain and suffering of his people. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Simeon was waiting for the Messiah who was promised to come and comfort his people in the midst of their pain and their longing and their angst. And this is what I want you to see. In their grief and in their pain, they were waiting for something that was promised that they had not yet received. And that's why Luke's gospel tells us that When Jesus wanted to start things off in his public ministry, he stood up in his hometown on the Sabbath day when the congregation of people was gathered in a setting much like this. It says in verse 17 of Luke chapter 4, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, was given to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The group of people that Jesus came to were people who had been waiting for the one who was to come, who were waiting for the promises to be fulfilled, who were waiting for the consolation or the restoration of Israel, the comfort that would come with that restoration. The same way as Simeon was waiting, the people in the synagogue on that day with Jesus were waiting for the same thing, inhabiting the same story with the same set of expectations and hopes and longings and mourning over the state of how things work. Jesus was saying he had arrived and that he was the one fulfilling this, that they had been looking for. But that isn't actually where the passage, which is quoted out of Isaiah, which is out of Isaiah chapter 61, that's not where the passage ends. Jesus is doing more than just dropping a couple verses of Isaiah onto the people. When he's reading that, what he's doing is invoking that entire passage and saying that it's about him. Let me show you what I mean. Isaiah 61 verse 1. Again, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. See the promise that is recorded for us in this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 61. Talks about how they would have read that and heard that in that moment of history when Jesus is teaching. They were expecting something. Last week we saw in the first of this list of Beatitudes, or these blessings, we saw in verse 3 of chapter 5 in Matthew's gospel, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what we looked at all last week. Do you see the connection? Jesus quoted Isaiah saying he was there to bring good news to the poor, the gospel to the poor. He was there to bring and proclaim good news for them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, we saw. That's not all that it says. Go back just to Isaiah 61 and just labor with me for a moment in this text. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Notice this. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. A garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Now, now listen to Jesus' second beatitude, this text that you've heard read this morning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Okay, Jesus is saying to them, the one you've been waiting for is here to bring the kind of comfort that you've longed for and the promised comfort that you've been expecting. Jesus is he's saying to this group of people, who mourned their situation in the world. They were 
mourning the evil and the injustice and the, imp- uh, the, the oppression that they felt and the sin and the consequences of that sin that was happening all around them that had led them into that point in history where they were under the oppressive rule of another nation and all of this is going on and Jesus is saying, I'm the one who came with the promise that those who mourn will be comforted. They were mourning the state of their world and they trusted in God's promise to right all wrongs and that he would one day make all things new. Just like us. See, they longed for the fullness of the kingdom to come. Just like us. They were longing for the coming of a new king who would sit on the throne of David forever. A new king. And his name's Jesus. And in our text, he has arrived. He arrived to Simeon. He spoke the prophecy of Isaiah so that his people would understand that he was the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, who had been promised. And he rules and he reigns with justice and peace. And now, here we are in 2019, and we too long for the fullness of the coming of his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We who mourn the state of the world around us shall be comforted. So that's what it meant then when Jesus spoke this in the Sermon on the Mount. As he sat on the Mount with his disciples at his feet and the crowds surrounding them, he had come to fulfill every promise. But we need to ask, second, what it means now when we read it. In a really similar way, we are in this posture of waiting and anticipating like Simeon and Isaiah and the people who sat at the feet of Jesus. They were waiting for the Savior to come and bring restoration to the people. And Jesus came and he accomplished that. And now we wait for the fulfillment of it. We have seen in part, but we have not yet seen in full. This is the already and the not yet tension of the kingdom of God that we have been talking about. We need to figure out then how to understand this and apply this to us on this side of Jesus' arrival, on this side of Jesus' teaching, and on this side of Jesus' death in our place and for our sins, and on this side of Jesus' resurrection, where he rises to new life, making a way for us to enter into new life. How do we understand this on this side of that whole story? His kingdom has already come, but we don't yet have the fullness of his kingdom. It's already come, but it's not yet fully come. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, like I said last week, just looking at the Beatitudes themselves, these statements of blessing here in Matthew 5 are not merely statements of how God sees you, They are not merely statements of how you feel in your circumstances, but they have to do with being invited into a kind of flourishing life that means that we can find our blessedness, our happiness, our flourishing, and we can find it in any and every circumstance because what we're doing is importing the not yet aspect of the kingdom into our present moment now. And in some way, we know that everything's going to be okay. We know that it's not okay, but that it will be okay. 
in some way we know that we can receive and shall receive God's comfort. And so we are actually free to mourn. We're free to mourn. We can mourn the broken state of the world around us. We can mourn evil and injustice and oppression. And we can mourn sin and the consequences of sin. Blessed are those who are now mourning, is what the text is saying. Blessed are those who are in a state of mourning. Blessed are those who look at the world and evil and injustice and sin and the consequences of sin. Blessed are those who see all of that and are brokenhearted. Blessed are the sorrow-bearing. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, Cost of Discipleship. He calls them the sorrow-bearing, the mourners. Blessed are those who are sorrow-bearing, who look at how things are and know how things can be, but are not yet the way they should be. Blessed are those who stand in the tension between the way things are and the way things ought to be and mourn and grieve over that. See, it, it is okay for you not to be okay. It's okay not to be okay with the way things are on a global level. It's okay for you not to be okay with the way things are in your neighborhood. It's okay that when you hear the sirens going down the street, that signals something to you that things are not as they ought to be. And it's okay that you're not okay with the way that you've been treated and the way you've treated others. It's okay. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Jesus himself wept over the state of the world. Jesus himself wept over the consequences of sin and evil. He wept over a city that would not receive him. It says in Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it, how often I uh, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, he mourns the reality that he came as the fulfillment of the promises and he was rejected. But what I want us to see about the state of sorrow that we, we can and I think should feel, it, it has to start here. It actually starts with us in our own hearts. Paul the Apostle, he got this. Of himself, he wrote in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Like you're not having your greatest day when you write that down to be read 2,000 years later. He was mourning the state of his own life, the state of his ongoing sin. (laughs) This is the Apostle Paul. One of the churches that he cared for deeply, the church in Corinth, he wrote to them and he said, speaking about the mess that was going on in their church, he said, ought not you to mourn? Like there's a proper place to not be happy clappy all the time. There is. There's a proper place to allow that sorrow to hit you. He says, ought not you to mourn? To the same church he wrote later on, it's in 2 Corinthians, he wrote, he said, I may have to mourn over those who sinned earlier and have not repented. Like he's saying, like, look, this was going on. Here's what I said. 
I might show up there and see that they haven't changed, changed their mind, turned away from it, and started to walk in the ways of Jesus. I might see that, and I'm telling you, I'm going to mourn. Daryl Johnson, in his book on the Beatitudes, said the second Beatitude is not advocating put-yourself-down spirituality, and you can all go, whew. It is simply recognizing that in the presence of Jesus, the Holy One, we cannot but grieve over our unholy condition. See, in some way, this mourning that Jesus is speaking of needs to be, it needs to be sorrow of our own repentance. It is, it is simple to look out on the world and to mourn evil, but how do you bring that home? See, it's actually nothing different than what we saw last week. It's recognizing your poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Right? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's recognizing your spiritual poverty, your great need to align yourself with Jesus, to walk in step with his spirit, and to live a life that glorifies him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's it's grieving the need to do that, even as you know that you're promised a comfort, that you're, you're promised God's comfort. It's important for us to see, though, this is not just feeling bad about yourself. If you came here this morning and all that you left with was, well, I guess I should feel worse about myself. Yeah, we're not that church. That's not what we're saying. But it's important to notice this. Second Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So it's a repentant mourning. I talked about repentance last week, a change of mind, a change of direction, a reorientation toward God to walk with him as he calls us. We're looking at a repentant mourning, a godly grief, not a worldly grief that kind of feels bad and sits there and feels bad about itself, but a godly grief that leads to repentance and an alignment with Jesus to walk in his kingdom. It's important that we notice that because we can go around feeling bad about ourselves and think that somehow God is really pleased with that. That's that's not what he means. It's recognizing that you need to repent and, and in godly grief align yourself with him and enter into the blessing. Blessed are those who mourn. Um, in Luke's gospel, he records some of these beatitudes and, and he balances the beatitudes with what are called woes or words of warning and judgment. Luke was probably really fun at parties, right? So he takes these blessed statements of Jesus and then he balances them with words of woe or warning. This is what it says in Luke six twenty one, and then in verse 25. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. But then verse 25 says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. See, what's he saying? He's saying if you mourn because the gospel has grabbed a hold of you, you know that you need to respond to the truth of the gospel and that it has taken hold in your life. It has grabbed you. God has gotten a hold of your heart. You ever hear people talk about that? God got a hold of them. That happened to me once. Hopefully it's happened more than once, but it happened really pronounced way once when I didn't know who he was. They go, oh yeah, God got a hold of him. That's what it's talking about. God gets a hold of you. You then long for the return of Jesus. You long for the death of death. 
You long for death to be vanquished from our midst. You long for the end of pain and sorrow. You long for your sin to be no more. You long for things to be made right. And when that happens, you are promised the comfort of Jesus' kingdom. You're promised his comfort. They shall be comforted. A kingdom that is, yes, it's already, but it is not yet. Okay, but it says in Luke's gospel, if you laugh now, what he's saying is, is if your comfort and your joy and your hope is in this world alone on the day of the Lord or on the, the end of the age, right? He's saying you're going to weep and mourn as Jesus is going to say later in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. So in Jesus, those who mourn today, and I would say if we mourn over our sin, the sin of others, the way things are, the state of the world around us, the injustice and evil that we see perpetrated against the oppressed and downtrodden people around the globe, when we mourn that, we're promised to be comforted. Now and forever. Those who are living here and now and are not mourning over their sin and the state of the world, those who are happy with the status quo, who just look around and go, things are actually pretty good for me. Actually, I know that there's bad stuff happening, but did you know I got these jeans for $5? Like, I know there's injustice on the other side of the world where they were made, but I got them for $5. Right? Like, practically applying this, where you don't grieve the things that you find out about around the world, but you go, hey, you know what? It's all roses for me. I like the status quo. If we could keep things the way they are, I'm killing it in life. That's who he's talking to. Those are the people that in the Gospels and beyond, Jesus actually denounces and rejects them. But listen, those who are living here and now who are mourning over the state of their own sin and the state of the world and are broken over the state of how things are and the way things are, these are the people that Jesus promises to comfort. See, we looked at what it meant then when Jesus spoke this on the mountain that day and gave his sermon to those folks who were listening to him, his disciples, and the crowds beyond. And now we've looked here at what it means now for us as we read it today in this moment. And what we find is that there's actually a common ground in both. There is a longing for the Savior, and there is also a a desire and a longing for restoration and renewal in this world. Like we have a promise that we have not yet seen fulfilled. That's how they read it, and that's how we read it. Different set of circumstances, but it's the same heart behind it. And that's why we need to look third at where we find our comfort. We have to. Here's why. I feel this, and I know you do too. I feel this. I feel this tension of knowing how I should be and how I'm not. Okay, I feel the tension of knowing the way that Jesus' kingdom should be and how it's not. I know when I look at situations on my street. The police came to our door the other night. We live in like, you know, 
house that we rent that's worth a gazillion dollars because we live in Vancouver, right? We live in a posh neighborhood, which is not actually posh, but just numerically it is. Police came and knocked on our door down the street and and, and they said, so I got like three daughters and a friend sleeping over and my wife and I are watching TV and they they knock on the door and the girls answer the door. They're like, hey, you know, they're not afraid of the police. This is awesome. What do you guys need? And they said, we hear there's a, we're here to responding to a domestic disturbance. And Allison gets up and she's like, not here. And they go, okay. And then they stop, they back away from the door and they stand there and watch until I come to the door and I go, hey, is everything okay? And they go, yeah, we're responding to a domestic, but uh, it appears we have the wrong address. And then someone shouts from the car, hey, we got the right address, and they all take off running down the street. This is my street. The parents of the kids that go to school with my kids. It doesn't take long to feel this. In our city, in a in our province and in our country, and if you travel at all or watch the news, it doesn't take long to feel this. And because we live in this age of 24-7 bad news, we get numb to it. We have to feel this. Fifteen years ago, I had an uncle who overdosed. And I watched it crush my grandmother and my mom. And I feel it still. It's not just the mother who lost her child. Mourning like this with Jesus is is being aware of the fact that it's a mother whose child was already lost. It's not just the sister whose brother died from an overdose. It's a sister who saw the pain in her brother's life that led to that addiction. It's not just the son who has to stand up and read the eulogy that his mother wrote for her brother at the funeral and then look out on the front row of the church and feel like there's no way to comfort her. It's the ache in our hearts that knows that this is not how things are supposed to be. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's those who've who've been invited into the kingdom, who, who weep for those who have not yet experienced that future promise of comfort brought into the present moment, the present moment of their mourning. It's not listen, it's not just the pastor who sits down with the woman who had an abortion to try and understand and to comfort her in her pain. It's the pastor who sits down and can't imagine the pain that led to that set of circumstances where that choice somehow made sense. It's mourning. It's the people of Jesus' kingdom who see the way things ought to be, who will most feely, uh, fully and, and, and deeply mourn the way that things are. Like the bigger vision of Jesus' kingdom you have, in a very true sense, the deeper your grief will be over the way things are. 
This new kingdom vision that Jesus is inviting us into in the Beatitudes themselves, their invitations to a life of flourishing with him, they come with pain and sorrow and the mourning that we feel here and now. They come with that because we know the foretaste of the comfort that is promised at the end of the age. Like Christ City, there is so much pain here in this room. Like, don't be fooled by the slick veneer on things. Just don't be. It's okay to feel it. It's okay to express it. We've got a long ways to go in expressing our grief and our godly sorrow. It's okay to long for comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So let's mourn the things that Jesus mourns and not try and fast forward through the pain, past the pain, in a way that actually short circuits the comfort promised to us by Jesus. See, false comforts, I think, are a lack of trust in God's provision for this. So seeking comfort through food or sex or alcohol or drugs or seeking comfort through busyness. If if I just keep going, I won't feel it. It just masks the pain. It doesn't do anything with it. It just covers it. Sometimes it's good to be able to get through a season with something like that where it helps. But you've got to know that what Jesus promises is infinitely better. Like it's not a false comfort. It's not a band-aid fix. It's a complete and utter healing of the pain in your soul. Blessed are those who carry unspoken pain and don't know how to share it. For they shall be comforted. So I just want to say, allow God into the pain. And I promise you that if you allow God into the pain in your life, he will reveal himself to you as the God of all comfort. But you've got to allow him to. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 says, Blessed, blessed, the same word we're anchored in, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Every single person sitting in this room right now comes with little slivers of pain in their heart. They just come from rubbing up with a world that's not as it should be. Every single one of us. I'll say that those of you who will lean into that suffering, who will lean into that mourning, who will lean into that pain, you're promised comfort. You're fully and finally, yes, I get that. But you're promised comfort right now. You're only going to find it in him. Revelation 21 Verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
See, the sea was a picture of chaos in that world. Chaos is gone. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now listen to this promise in verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Would you stand with me as we respond today? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.